Let me start that over. He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and bring down, brings down the stronghold in which they trust. He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? A false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. A wicked man displays a bold face, but as for the upright, he makes his way sure. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, we thank you that in your word you have provided everything that is necessary for our salvation, Lord, so that our faith may be built up and may be strong, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Lord, teach us today, Lord, uh, how to make a distinction between good and evil. Lord, give to us greater discernment on the pathway of what is the pathway of righteousness, Lord, and those that are opposed to everything that is good and right. Lord, may we walk in the straight ways of the Lord. And Lord, we pray that you establish us in these ways. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, here, Proverbs 21.1 says, He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. Here, when he's saying he who pursues righteousness and loyalty, he cannot mean he who pursues righteousness by his own works, by his own obedience, by his own efforts. Because we know that by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. So it cannot be the righteousness that is through the works of the law. This is the righteousness that the Jews were pursuing uh, in the days of Christ that caused them to reject the righteousness that is by faith, right? They did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was dependent on their own works and they stumbled over the stumbling stone. It says in Romans chapter nine, in Romans chapter nine, verse 30, Romans nine, verse 30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained it? That is the righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law leading to righteousness did not attain it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were on the basis of works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Here, the Jews stumbled over Christ. They did not attain 
righteousness because they pursued it as if it were based upon the law, based upon their own works. Well, this cannot be the righteousness that he's talking about in verse 21 because it says there, he who pursues righteousness and loyalty will find life, righteousness, and honor. So what is this righteousness then that he's speaking of? Well, it's not the righteousness that comes by the law, but rather it is the righteousness of faith, the righteousness that comes through believing in the only begotten Son, by building your life upon the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. He is a stone of stumbling to them, but to us, he is a chosen and precious stone, right? In Zion, God is laying this precious stone. It is the righteousness of faith. Those who pursue the righteousness of faith, they will receive righteousness. They will receive eternal life. They will receive eternal honor and glory from the Lord, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or they shall be satisfied, right? We must pursue true righteousness, and that is the very righteousness of Christ. And this is what he is speaking of here. The one who pursues that righteousness will find life, righteousness, and loyalty. Verse 22, a wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. Right, the wise man is able to overcome these insurmountable odds. Right, the might, the power, the strength that the mighty one has, the stronghold that fortifies him, that gives him such great defense. The wise man is able, through his wisdom, to scale this mighty stronghold and bring down this tower in which he puts his hope and trust. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Here, it speaks of wisdom as having more value than strength and might. Ecclesiastes 9, 13. He says, Also, this I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it. And a great king came to it and surrounded and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom, yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. Here, the king comes with a very great army, surrounds this small city, and yet through the wisdom of this poor man, the city was delivered by his wisdom, by his craftiness. And in that way, the wisdom is superior to the strong, to the might, to these things that give these outward appearances of strength and vigor. Also, we know from Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, in verse 21 and 22, this the Lord Christ does to our great enemy and adversary, which is the devil, he scales his tower and brings it down and delivers those who are under his power. Luke eleven twenty one. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor in which he has relied and distributes his plunder. Here in this scenario, the strong man, fully armed, guarding his house and his possessions, is Satan, who has men, wicked men, 
right, who are under his control, under his power, right? He exercises power through the fear of death over men. Because of the nature of sin, he, through his temptations, brings about sin and death in men. But Christ, who is stronger than the strong man, is able to overpower him, he binds him, and then he plunders that which belongs to him. He takes away that which is Satan's. Then also, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, ultimately in Proverbs 21, though it can be true of armies and physical strength and might in that way, ultimately I think it does have reference to wisdom, philosophy, uh, reasoning, arguments, right? Because this is what people are doing. They are trusting in worldly wisdom, their own ideas and arguments, and yet the wisdom of the Bible is able to destroy and demolish whatever strongholds, right? Whatever towers, whatever wisdom and philosophy that people are putting their trust in, the truths of the Bible are able to destroy those things because they reveal how futile and how weak and impotent they are. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. For we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. There, the wise man, the one who is filled with the wisdom and the knowledge of God that's found in the word of God, is able to destroy speculations, lofty thinking that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. This is what is taking place in human philosophy, right? Human ideologies, all of the things, uh, worldly religions, They have their ideas, their thoughts, right? They're speaking about things that the Bible speaks about. They're telling us about who God is. They're telling us about human nature. They're telling us about good and evil, telling us about the life to come. All of these things, they are pontificating, giving their wisdom, their understanding concerning all of these topics. But everything there is futile. It's weak. It's empty. It is worthless. When it is compared and brought to contrast with what is found in the Bible, And the one who is equipped with the knowledge of the word of God is able to destroy these speculations, this empty philosophy that comes from man. He's able to scale the city of the mighty and bring down the stronghold in which people put all of their confidence and trust, right? This is the work of apologetics, which is to defend, to argue, to show the greatness of the Christian faith in contrast to the futility of all of the reasons and ideas of men. Verse 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. Here we know that the tongue, the mouth, right? Here the mouth and tongue are synonyms used for the same thing. This is our our words, that the mouth of a man is the source of much of his sin, right? Much trouble, uh, much judgment, condemnation comes upon men, both in this life and the life to come, Because they do not have self-control over their mouth. They can't keep their mouth shut, but they always feel the need to say whatever comes into their mind, especially when it's a heated situation, right? They cannot put a muzzle or put any control over their tongue. But here, the one who guards his mouth, 
right? The one who guards his tongue guards his soul from trouble, right? There is a correlation between the mouth and the soul. To guard the mouth is to guard the soul. Because if you guard your mouth, what are you not going to do? You're not going to sin with your mouth. And when you don't sin with your mouth, you're preserving, you're saving your soul from troubles that are going to come upon it, right? Many troubles in this world, right? Making of enemies, causing of strife and contention between people, right? And then ultimately strife between God and eternal condemnation and damnation because of what people say, because God will bring every word into judgment. Even the idle words that men say will be brought into judgment on the day of Christ. Well, if we want to preserve our soul, guard our soul, then guard our tongue and guard our mouth. And this is one of the evidences of godliness, right? Of true faith. Faith without works is dead. And one of the good works that should be evident, one of the fruits of the Spirit that will be produced in the children of God is self-control. And the primary uh, way that self-controlled is exercised in the life of the Christian has to be the tongue, the mouth, that he guards his mouth so that he does not say things out of season at the proper time. He knows how to control what comes out of his mouth. And there are very few people who have this, who have this self-control and this ability. It's something that we must strive for and pray that God would grant us such uh, such a mastery over our tongues. In Psalm 141, verse 3, there the psalmist prays, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. There, though it is our responsibility to do this, he also is praying that God would do it for him, that God would be the one who gives him the conviction, the self-control. It is a work of the Spirit that must be produced within us, and we need to strive for it. If we are in doubt whether we should speak, Usually the best course of action is to be quiet, right? <laughs> to, to be quiet. Okay, verse 24. Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names, who acts with insolent pride, right? A man who is insolent and prideful, who has a perverse pride within him. Because of his insolent pride, people are going to call him these names. This is what he's going to be associated with. People are going to say he's a very proud man, a very arrogant man. He's a very haughty man. He is a scoffing man. He will be known and associated with these kinds of things. Do we want people to associate us with pride, with haughtiness, with being a scoffer? Isn't it better if people know us, oh, he's a very kind man, he's a very gentle man, a very loving man, a very compassionate man, a very generous man? Right? These are the things that we want to be known for, that we want to be true of our life. But a person who has insolent pride, instead, what they are known for is their pride, their haughtiness, and their scoffing. In Isaiah chapter 16, Isaiah chapter 16, verse 6, this is what was true of the Moabites, who are idolatrous, who are wicked and evil people. Isaiah 16, 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride, and fury. His idle boasts are false. The Moabites, the pride of the Moabites, these people were filled with excessive pride, arrogance, pride, fury, right? This is the same as it is being spoken of here. These are not fruits of the Spirit. 
These are the deeds of the flesh. This is the spirit of Antichrist. It is the spirit, a demonic spirit, that produces such traits and attributes in men. And we don't want these things to be true of us. Verse 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Here, the sluggard, he desires certain things. He's craving for certain things, right? Because he is a man, because he has bodily needs and desires, he's always craving for these things. Everyone needs food. We need clothing. We need shelter, right? And then also many people desire and they want the nicer things of life. It's not just that they want bread and water, but they want to eat a nice meal. It's not just that they want a, a, a feeble shack over their head. They want a nice house, right? They want a car that has some of the luxuries of life. This is what men desire and crave for. Well, the sluggard desires these things, but what is the means God has ordained for a man to obtain them, for a man to get these? It is through hard work and through diligence and the blessing and favor of God, because there are some who work hard and diligently, and yet they never rise out of poverty. So it does take the blessing of the Lord, but in terms of human responsibility, the proper way to pursue the desires of this life and even the nicer, finer things of this life is through hard work and diligence. And yet what does the sluggard refuse to do? He refuses to work. He has the cravings and the desires for the good things, but the means appointed by God to obtain those things, he neglects. He will not do them because he refuses to work. So his desires will ultimately put him to death. Either they'll put him to death because he will not obtain the necessities of life and he'll die of starvation or he'll perish from exposure, something like that. Or more likely, he will turn to sin as the means to obtain the things that he craves. He'll become a thief, right? He'll murder. He'll do whatever it takes. He'll be a covetous man and seek to take and defraud others. And he may come to death in this life because of this, but for sure, he'll come to death in the life to come because he is seeking these things without pursuing them in the right way. In contrast to the sluggard, we have the righteous who gives and does not hold back. The sluggard craves, he wants, he desires, and then he uses sinful means to obtain it. The righteous man, he has, but what he has, he doesn't cling on to. He gives and he doesn't hold back which means he gives generously, not begrudgingly, but in a cheerful way. He loves to give and to be generous with what God has blessed him with, with his possessions. He wants to do good to the poor. He wants to support the ministry and to support uh, the things of God. He wants to be a blessing to his family. He's not a, a miser and a stingy, greedy person, right? Who just wants to hoard up his wealth and never use it in a proper way. That's not the way the righteous man behaves. He wants to use his wealth first to be a blessing to his family, to bless his wife and his children. He doesn't want them dressed in rags, tattered here and there, because he's trying to save up all of his money for what? No, whatever is necessary for their life, he's going to provide that for them. He wants them to be clothed in a fine way, in a good way, right? And he uses whatever the wealth God gives in order to do so. But then also when he sees those in need, those who are poor, he gives to them and he doesn't hold back. 
Also for the maintaining and supporting of the word of God and the ministry of the word. He gives to those things and he doesn't hold back. So the the sluggard, the covetous man, he desires and seeks to gain, 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 but he never thinks of anyone else and he pursues it the wrong way. Whereas the righteous man, God blesses him and he has much and then he gives with no thought of return. He gives in this way uh, and doesn't hold back, right? He loves to do it. He casts his bread upon many waters. Psalm 37, Psalm 37 And this is another mark of a godly man is that the godly are generous. They are generous. And it is their understanding of the gospel and what God has done for them that causes them to, to do such things. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians 8, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. In the context of 2 Corinthians 8, when the apostle is teaching this wonderful truth concerning the gospel, Christ was rich, spiritually speaking, yet for your sakes he became poor. He became poor. He took on our flesh. He humbled himself. He came to this earth. He died on the cross. And he became poor for what reason? so that we might become rich, so that we might have spiritual riches. Well, when the apostle brings that forward in 2 Corinthians 8, what is the context for him to bring that forward? What is he at that point urging the Corinthian Christians to do? It is in the context of them taking up an offering to support and to help the churches that are suffering and that are in destitution and poverty because of their faith in Christ. And he's telling them, to emulate the Lord Jesus Christ. He was rich, yet he became poor for your sake. So you who are rich ought to become poor for the sake of your brothers in Christ. Because of our love for God and our love for the saints, this is what the righteous man will do. This is gospel generosity or the generosity of faith. Psalm 37, 26. Of the righteous man, all day long he is gracious and lends. And his descendants are a blessing all day long, right? He gives and doesn't hold back. And then Psalm 112. Psalm 112 and verse 5 says, It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. It will go well with the man who is gracious and lends. That this is one of the fruits that God will bring forward on the day of judgment to prove the salvation, the conversion, the regeneration that has taken place in the life of his saints. Verse 27, Proverbs 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? Here, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. Those sacrifices in the proper context under the Old Covenant, though those things were prescribed by God, and though they were to be practiced by even those who had true faith, the righteous, the godly, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, the prophets, all of them offered sacrifices to God. 
And when those sacrifices are done in faith, then they're pleasing in the sight of God. But when a wicked man is doing the exact same thing, even if they're coming to the temple, they're coming to the right priest, they're bringing the correct sacrifices, but they're bringing those things with evil intent, with a heart that is not right before God, not out of faith, but out of just some ritual or out of this desire to get God into my favor, into my debt, so that now God is obligated to bless me, right? I brought a sacrifice to him. I gave to God. I scratched his back. Now God has to scratch my back. And there are many people who give in this way. They give to God, not out of faith, not out of generosity, not out of love for God and love for their fellow man, but out of love for themselves, that if I give to God, if I give $1,000, then he's obligated to give me $10,000 in return, right? There are many who promote this kind of thinking. Well, that type of thinking is not good and right. And even if we're doing something that in and of itself is good and right in the sight of God, if we're not doing it the right way, with the right heart, with the right attitude, then it is an abomination to God. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to God. How much more, he says, when he brings it with evil intent, with evil intent. James chapter four, James chapter four, verse three. And again, this principle is very important for it teaches us that the outward aspects of worship, and there are outward components, formal outward components to our worship and to our devotion to God such as gathering together with God's people, coming to church, hearing the word, praying to God, giving to God. All of those things need to be done. Baptism is an outward form, taking of the Lord's Supper. All of those things must be a part of the Christian life that we practice. But simply doing those things is not sufficient if we're not doing them the right way, with the right heart, with the right attitude. And doing those things with the wrong attitude is a corruption, and it's an abomination to God, and he's not pleased with those things, right? James 4.3, you ask and do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You ask, who are they asking? God. And when we ask God, we're praying. They're praying to God, they're asking God for things, but they're not receiving, because why are they asking? for their own pleasures, right? They're not asking for the right reasons. They have these ill motives, sinful motives. So are these prayers pleasing in the sight of God? No, it's an abomination to God. And God's not going to answer their prayers. So we must do the right things, but we must do them the right way, the right way, with the right heart. There must be continuity, or unity between the inward man and the outward man. Both the inward and outward must be rightly aligned with God, right? With the word of God and with the things of God. Verse 28, a false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. The false witness will perish because he's a liar and liars have no part in uh, the new heavens and new earth. Right? They will not be there in the kingdom of God. So the false witness, the one who bears false witness against God, against his fellow man, right? and this is true of all liars, especially false teachers. False teachers 
are false witnesses because they're testifying to men that what they are saying and speaking is truth, that this is who God is. They're accurately teaching them the way of salvation, how to live a life pleasing to God, right? What God requires of them. But their witness is a false witness because it's not built upon or based upon the truth of God's word. Well, this false witness, he's going to perish. This can happen in this life where a false witness who commits perjury on the stand is put to death or he's punished in this life. But ultimately, we know in the life to come when God will bring all things to light and will expose the falsehoods of the false witness. But the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. Here, the listening is not merely hearing it in one ear and out the other. Of course, it can't be that. It's the one who listens from the heart with his spiritual ears. He listens to the truth with the desire to incorporate that truth into his faith and into his practice so that he can obtain wisdom from God. So when we come to hear the word of God, when we come and we read the word of God and we're listening to God, with the desire to obtain wisdom and knowledge and understanding into the will of God so that we can practice it, so that we can obey it, so that we can incorporate it into our faith, so that we can teach others, so that I can be a better father and teach my wife and my children the things of God and teach others, my fellow, beloved, my fellow brothers in Christ and even those who are outside the church so that I can instruct them in the ways of God. Well, when we have that desire then we're going to speak forever. We're going to speak forever, meaning that we will speak the truth not only in this life, but also in the life to come. Because in the life to come, the lips of the saints will only bear witness to the truth. In this life, we want to bear witness to the truth as much as we can, as much as possible. But of course, because of the flesh, because of our own weaknesses and corruptions, there will be times when our testimony is not sincere or it's not good and consistent with the truth. But those who desire and who desire understanding and wisdom, who listen in the right way, we will speak truth forever and forever. 29. A wicked man displays a bold face, but as for the upright, he makes his way sure. Here, a wicked man has a bold face. A bold face meaning... He is very bold, very obstinate in his sinfulness. Though what he does and what he says should be cause for him to blush, to be ashamed, to cast his eyes down, right, in disgrace and shame, yet because of his wickedness, he is very bold in the things that he does. This we see all throughout our world and society, perhaps nowhere more prevalent than in the homosexual uh, people because they ought to be very ashamed of what they are and what they do, right? They do things that it is not even proper to speak publicly about the things that they do. And yet they will march around very bold-facedly, right, out in the open in public display of all of their shame, right? Things that should be a cause of great scandal and great shame and ignominy toward a man. They will do these things in the broad daylight, in front of children, for crying out loud. Very bold-faced in their sin. Now, will they do this in the sight of God? No. When they stand before God, they're not going to be bold in their sin. But in this life, they are, because they have no fear of God. And this is the way the wicked behave. They have no shame of the things that they ought to be ashamed of. 
But the upright makes his way sure. Right? The upright is always testing himself, testing his life. He wants to live an unashamed life. He wants to live a godly and righteous life. So he wants to make his way sure. He's always testing his life, his thoughts, his actions, his values and virtues according to the word of God to make sure that he's walking on the straight and narrow. The wicked man, he just assumes, right? He has great confidence that everything he does is right and pleasing in the sight of God. He's not making his way sure by testing it according to the word of God. But the upright man is always examining his life, examining his calling and election to make it sure. He's like the Bereans who is searching the scripture to see if these things are so and contrasting his own life with what he sees in the word of God. So he has a more humble approach to his life and his existence though he should have greater confidence and boldness that he's acceptable in the sight of God. The wicked, who are detestable in God's sight, are very bold in that everything they do, God approves of and is pleased with, though that's contrary to the word of God. Verse 30. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Romans 3, 4. Let God be found true and every man a liar. Whatever rises up against the knowledge of God, whatever wisdom there is in this world, whatever understanding there is in this world, whatever counsel there is in this world, if at any point that wisdom, that understanding, or that, or that counsel contradicts what has been revealed by God in His Word, who will be victorious in that debate? Whose counsel will stand? Whose wisdom will be proven to be true? Whose knowledge will refute the other? The counsel of the Lord will stand and whatever there is in this world that opposes itself to the knowledge of God found in the word of God, it will ultimately be destroyed. Is God's word, is it not like a hammer that destroys, that shatters the rock into pieces? Is his word not like a fire that burns the straw and the stubble to nothing? There is nothing that will stand against the counsel of the Lord. Whatever worldly philosophies, whatever worldly religions there are, even if the whole world believes those things, even if everyone is chasing after them, in all of the reputable institutions, right, these uh, institutions of higher, so-called higher education, right? Because we know these people are a bunch of depraved maniacs. In Harvard, Yale, who would want to go to those worthless places? Anyway, some people, they really desire that. And they have a, a name and a reputation of being cultural, enlightened areas. But most of what they say contradicts everything that's in the Bible. Everything they're teaching undermines the word of God and the counsel of the Lord. Oh, but this is what they say at Harvard, so we should believe it and we should accept it because it's such a reputable institution. But should we? No, because we see here, whatever is brought up against the knowledge of God, it's going to be destroyed, right? It will be brought to nothing. The counsel of the Lord will stand against all the wisdom of this world. And if the whole world rises up to contradict the word of God, what will be found at the end of the day? God will be proven true, and every single man will be proven to be a liar, a liar in the sight of God. Job chapter 40, 
Job 40. Job 40, verses 6 to 8. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Right? Will we condemn God that we might be justified? No, we can never do that because the counsel of the Lord will stand. His judgments are inscrutable. So we must submit ourselves then, humble ourselves before the word of God, believe what his word says, even if it goes against everything found in this present world. Then verse 31, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Here, when it comes to warfare, especially in the ancient world, the horse, the cavalry, right? This was a mighty weapon, a mighty implement of war. One of my professors in my old history classes used to say the cavalry was the tank division of the ancient world, right? If you had a strong cavalry, then you were an invincible force, right? It gave you great strength against whoever would come up against you because you could just mow them down with your horses. So if you had cavalry and if you had this division in your army, it made you a very formidable opponent. And so many people in this time put their hope in the horse, put their hope in the horse for the day of battle, that if we have horses on our side, if we have a strong cavalry with great warriors on our side, then we will be victorious. We will ride out to battle and no one will be able to withstand us. But who does the battle belong to? It belongs to the Lord, right? The Lord is the one who gives the victory. So we need not to trust in men or the strength of men, but rather we need to trust in the Lord. Now, of course, he's not saying that it's a sin to prepare ourselves for battle. If an army is coming against us, we should prepare ourselves for battle. And we should, if we have horses, you know, and they have horses, we ought to get ours out and be ready to, to fight against them with those horses or with whatever thing that we can have that gives us strength and gives us an advantage over and against our enemy. But if we're relying on those things and not trusting in the Lord, then we're putting our hope and confidence in the wrong place. There is a place to prepare, to be wise, to plan, to use what resources we have at our disposal to our advantage. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we must resign ourselves to the Lord and put our trust and confidence in the Lord. And even an army with no horses and no cavalry who has the Lord on their side, going against a much greater army that does have horses and a cavalry, God can give them the victory over the other one, right? Just as he did with David and Goliath, who was but a, a lad, a young man, not a great warrior like this uh, brute beast that he was facing, yet he came against him in the name of the God of Israel, the God that you have defied. He was fighting in the strength of the Lord. And as we remember with Gideon, with his meager army of 300 men going up against this great force, and yet God gave them the victory. So our hope in this life then to be delivered from all of our enemies, it has to be the Lord. The, the victory belongs to him. So we must put our hope and our confidence in the Lord. This means we need to be praying, praying to God for him to strengthen us and to help us 
in every battle we face, whether that be in the physical world, but primarily in the spiritual world. We have many battles to face in the spiritual world. And there is a place for us to be prudent and wise, to, uh, to, to apply ourselves to whatever we can in order to overcome and to have victory in those areas. But ultimately, we must rely upon and depend upon the strength of God during all those situations. Psalm thirty-three, seventeen: a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. A false hope for victory. The horse cannot deliver. And this was seen in Israel's history. Whenever they faced these enemies, instead of turning to the Lord, they would want to go to the Egyptians. They would want to go to some other outside source that had a great army and rely upon them and trust in them for their hope and deliverance instead of trusting in the Lord. But we must trust in the Lord, right? We must put our confidence in Him and know that he will give us the victory over whatever enemy comes against us. So then let us put our hope in him. Let's pray, and then we will be dismissed. And Bruce, would you mind praying and dismissing us today?